The scripture reading for today is Luke 16, 1 through 13. Jesus told his disciples, There was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, What is this I hear about you? Give me an account of your management, because you cannot be manager any longer. The manager said to himself, What shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, How much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it for 450. Then he asked the second, and how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 800. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much, and whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Thank you for downloading our podcast. Make sure you subscribe to get new ones every week. And don't forget to check out First United Methodist Sweetwater's website and social media. Now, here is Pastor Ryan Strebeck. Uh, do we have any J.R.R. Tolkien fans in the room? Any, uh, any Lord of the Rings fans out there? The Hobbit? Okay. All right. We got a few. I see. I see. I see you out there. Uh, apparently, Amazon is a big fan uh, because they just bet a large part of the farm on this. I think it's the highest budget film series, TV series that in history on this new Lord of the Rings thing. So um, J.R.R. Tolkien, if you know a little bit about his life, uh, a phenomenal life, a brilliant, brilliant man, uh, was, a, was in the army in Britain during World War I. And saw, of course, the atrocious things 
uh, became a professor, uh, was a, a really specialized in medieval literature and, and Gaelic traditions and all the fun stuff. And so he, part of his life dream while he was teaching at Oxford and doing all the stuff that he did was to write this epic story. He felt like a lot of the stories from his own tradition, his own people had been lost. He wanted to bring those back so that people could know those stories. And so he began work on this project, which I can't even begin to describe it. Uh, my kids could tell you better about all the things that he did, but I mean, he, he came up with this whole language, this whole interaction, this whole uh, thing that just from scratch. And, um, and so in the midst of this project, when he's working on it, you know, over years and years of his life, uh, he got very discouraged as we can tend to get when we're working. Any kind of work that we do, uh, it's common to get discouraged and wonder, is this work that I'm doing important? Does this work that I do today even matter? Will it ever make a difference to anyone? And it's easy to get discouraged. So Tolkien gets discouraged. He's really uh, just having a hard time on, on how to, where to go next. He's at a point in the story, he doesn't think it's, he doesn't even know if he can make it work, if he can bring all the streams together. And somewhere along that time, he had this idea to express some of his frustration by writing a short story. And this short story uh, was published in England, and we, you can read it today. You can go Google um, Leaf by Niggle, and you can story is about 10 pages long. It's a brilliant little short story. And, and he, he was a contributor to the, the dictionary, of course, the Oxford Dictionary. And the word niggle, if you were to look it up in those days, would have essentially said something like small, insignificant, a small, insignificant task, something that really doesn't matter. It's something, it's like work that you do with no effect. So it kind of captures how we feel from time to time. So without telling the whole story, you know, go read it. It's a great one. Niggle's this artist who is a perfectionist, but he's also a person who's very kind. So between his perfectionism, where he can't ever get anything like he wants it, and being really kind, so every time a neighbor says, hey, can you help me with this? Or hey, can you help me with that? He's like, sure. And so he constantly is being called away, and he never gets to work on his masterpiece which is going to be this tree. But now the problem with this tree that he envisions is he's never been a great tree painter, but he's a wonderful leaf painter. So he spends all his time working on these few leaves and he gradually begins this big mural. He needs a ladder to finish it and he keeps working on it, keeps working on it, but he keeps getting called away and he's, it's a work in progress. It doesn't look like really anything to anyone else and he just keeps working little by little, but he gets called away and long story short, his output was small, it was very slow, and his time comes where he's no longer going to be in his life anymore. He's taking the long journey home, which he's, he's about to die. And, uh, and so he, he keeps getting pulled away. And anyways, he, he's on a train, which is a great metaphor for where he's headed to his final destination. And he's lamenting because he, he never finishes his painting. He never finished. And he just thinks, gosh, see all that stuff, all the things that I had I was going to do and I never got to finish and no one will ever get to see the beauty that I saw. And a few people would see part of it in a museum later, but then even that would be forgotten. And so it really was kind of seeming like a lost cause. And so he's on a train to this final destination, and the train stops, and he gets out, and he sees this little set of stairs, and on the stairs there's a bicycle. And it's, it looks like his bicycle, and it has his name on it, Niggle. And he goes, oh, okay. So he hops on the bicycle, and before he knows it, he's out of the familiar country, and he's into this country that he, he doesn't recognize, he's never seen before. And it's this beautiful thing. And in the middle of this country, he sees a tree. 
but it's not just any tree. It's his tree. It's the tree that he imagined, you know, and it's the one that he, that he thought about. And so he gazes at the tree. He slowly lifts his arms and he opens them wide. And he says, it's a gift. It's a gift. This thing in his mind all these years is a gift. And the fact that it's here, it's a gift. And his talent and everything came together. And he studied the tree. And he realized that all throughout the tree are these little individual leaves that he labored over throughout his life. And he just begins to see the whole puzzle come together just as he had imagined it. It's common for us to look at work that we have been asked to do or called to do or chosen to do and wonder if we're making a difference, right? If any of it really matters. And it's also common to be frustrated, to feel like we're not getting to do the things that we really, really want to do. Those things that we feel like we were really put on the earth to do. I wanted to talk today just for a little bit about kind of an understanding of work, a theology of work. What does God say about our work? Is our work important or is it just the seventh day where we arrest and we know what we're created for, we know we're human beings created in the image of God, but the other six days, ah, they're just, you know, they're just those dreary days and they don't really matter. But of course, we read throughout the scriptures and we realize that God is very, He recognized our work is very important. He created us for work. Uh, you'll remember that in the garden, we had work before we had the fall of mankind. We, work was part of the original design of God. And and even how we were going to eat and enjoy paradise was going to be through work, uh, through farming and through all the doing all the things that we do. So work is a good thing. It's inherently good. Of course, after the fall, it takes on this toil nature where so much of our work uh, can tend towards just feeling like it's insignificant, it's small, it doesn't really accomplish anything. And we're just, you know, we're cogs in the wheel. Uh, We're we're part of a big machine and we're never going to really get anywhere. But we... So many times, and Luke, it's great talking through some of these things. What, what we do and what we gain from our work is very important, and it plays a, a role in God's kingdom. So Jesus tells his disciples this parable that Cindy read for us, and it's a fascinating story. It's one of the ones that makes me scratch my head every time I read it, and, and you don't hear a lot about it, I don't feel like, because it's very confusing. And you start asking yourself, why is Jesus commending the behavior of this dishonest guy to us. Why is he telling his disciples, hey, I need you to pick up on something this dishonest guy is doing, and you can go kind of take that and, and work it for the good in your life. It's like, why, why would you commend the dishonest guy? Why would you hold him up to us? And so some scholars, of course, read this and they say, well, you know, he must not have really been dishonest. Really what he was doing by going to his, his boss's, you know, debtors and saying, well, hey, just cut your bill in half. Hey, just cut 20% off your bill. Really what he was doing, he was just taking his cut. He was just taking his interest, his commission that was due to him. And then that kind of smooths it all out and makes the guy seem like an okay guy. The problem with that interpretation is there's nothing in the text to support that. Jesus says he's a dishonest manager. He's he's clearly saving his own backside. That's all he's doing. He's he's fired. And before he's between when he's fired and when he turns his keys in, he goes to his business contacts that he's developed for his boss. And he says, hey, you guys, I want to keep friends with y'all. Can y'all, all you need to pay my boss is half. And so they're happy because they get a good deal and he gets to keep a friendship with them. And he's thinking when I'm old and I can't work anymore, I'm too ashamed to beg. I'm getting too old to dig holes and do all the stuff. So I need someplace to stay when I get old. Maybe these guys will take me in because I gave them such a break on these business deals. Maybe they'll take me into their homes. 
The whole point is I want a place to have a home someday when I can't provide one for myself. He's not virtuous, but he is savvy. He's shrewd. And I think the West Texas translation is savvy is better for us to understand. He gets it. Like he understands how to stay alive in that system. He knows how to make it. And so he's cheating his master to gain favor and make friends for his own benefit. So again, he's dishonest, but he is savvy. And Jesus says, you know, the children of this age, this, the world, are many times more savvy at understanding how their world works than the children of light are at understanding how the kingdom of God works. So he's like, if, if you disciples and you people of God and you Pharisees and you people of the light, if y'all were as savvy about the kingdom as the children of this age are about making it work in this world, we would be in great shape. So if this guy, who is a sorry character, spends time preparing to be received into homes, Jesus says, how much more should we, the children of light, spend our time preparing to be received into what he calls the eternal dwellings? How much more should our work and our energy go towards preparing an eternal home where we will be received forever. Jesus says we sometimes neglect to work in and prepare for the kingdom of God. Sometimes we forget that all of our work should be directed towards what Jesus calls an eternal dwelling. The goal of our lives, in fact, is to be received into these eternal dwellings. And so even the, uh, what, what the text calls unrighteous wealth or mammon, even the unrighteous wealth that we necessarily participate in, right? This is We just get the economy that we get. Should be directed towards this end of securing an eternal dwelling. This doesn't mean, of course, that all of a sudden this is not a, a pivot to a works salvation, works righteousness thing. It's not like the work that we do secures the grace of God for ourselves because grace is free and our salvation comes at great cost to Jesus, but no, not, not of our own work. There's nothing we can do to earn our salvation. However, uh, it does mean that our work is entirely significant. And whether we are trustworthy or untrustworthy, stewards of what we receive for our labor, will give evidence to whether we were serving unrighteous wealth as a master or whether we were putting it to work as stewards. Was it mastering us? Or are we mastering it? Something to be given, something to be shared, something that is a reward for our labor that can be given and shared or it can be hoarded and it can become our God. Those are the two options. So Jesus uses this Greco-Roman concept of making friends. You know, we have our little, our little socials, our little business parties and our stuff, and we're trying to make contacts, make friends. Jesus says, use your unrighteous wealth to make friends. Right? Because then when it's time for eternal dwelling time, this, this, will, this will work to your advantage. And so we're, we're securing with the unrighteous wealth. You know, what do we use, what we've, what we've earned, what do we use our possessions for? Uh, do we use those to sort of make friends, so to speak, so that we have these eternal dwellings? Or do we let those things master us? So there's this unrighteous wealth, which again is a great way to think about money. Because of course money in itself is... It's not good or bad. It's just, it's just wealth. It's just stuff. It's just money. Uh, money is not evil inherently. It's not good inherently. And so this idea of it being unrighteous wealth is just a way of saying it's not, 
it's not material to the kingdom of God, but it's just necessary for what we do. And so what we gain through our work will end up in one of two places. All that we work for, all that we invest, all that we put into our jobs and what we receive for it and just the tasks that we do will either become something that we trust in and we ask to be our God. And Jesus says, nobody can serve God and money. You got you to gotta pick one. It doesn't work that way. It'll either become the thing that we trust, which then ironically reminds us that we were not trustworthy with the resources that we were given. Or we can use the unrighteous wealth to make friends, to secure eternal dwellings, uh, to become trustworthy. When we have a little bit in our hands, uh, we become good stewards of that. And then we realize that we actually have much and more and more is given. And so we are trustworthy, deemed trustworthy. And so we are preparing for eternity. We're preparing, we're investing in the kingdom of God. The end result of the one is that we may have a lot of unrighteous wealth. Uh, we have mammon. It's what we have. And very often, if that's the one thing that we want, some of us are smart enough and sharp enough and can work hard enough to, by golly, go get it. And we end up with it. And sometimes that's what we want our whole lives and we finally get it. And we realize it didn't make us happy, but that's what we got. We got what we wanted and it led us astray. Or... It can remind us, unrighteous wealth, that nothing is wasted, that none of our work is wasted, and none of what we are given for our work is wasted if it is directed towards a worthy goal. Our school, our work, even the stuff that just seems totally insignificant, when directed towards the good end, it's not only serving people now, but it's gaining for us this unrighteous wealth that we can use, we can share, we can uh, give away. There are so many people that feel like their calling in life as Christians is just to, they're going to make money and they're going to give that money away. You talk to people, it's a fascinating story. And then others of us are called to serve in different ways. It's hey, my actual work. I'm serving the poor. I'm serving those that are in need. I'm serving people that need help with this and that. And I'm helping a business in a small town and so I can do this and that and the other. And I'm staying home with my kids so I can teach them to read so that all that stuff, whatever it is that we are called to do, uh, every little thing, nothing is wasted when directed towards a worthy goal. So our school, our work, it generates income, generates status, and it serves the common good along the way, all throughout, reminding us that it has great dignity, the work that we do. We're not just machines. Uh, we were given great talents, great skills that we develop, and think about the things that we learn over time, uh, the, the, the savvy that we pick up, and we can then use that, of course, for, uh, to be mastered by what we gain, or we, can, or we can give it away, we can share it. And it reminds me, I read this story, and I hear about J.R.R. Tolkien, that if he struggled <laughs> in that way. And we all look at him and go, oh my gosh, you're so successful. And of course, he could never have imagined how popular his work would be and how much of an impact it would have on the world. But if he struggled, it reminds me that it's common to humanity to struggle thinking that our work is insignificant and that what we do will never amount to much. The gospel, on the other hand, reminds us that if we are trustworthy with little things, we will be trusted with greater things kingdom things. And the work that we do with that end in mind will carry on into eternity. Our ability to be faithful and trustworthy requires the energy of the Holy Spirit. 
And one of the great pieces of the gospel, I think, is that as we struggle and with our perfection and all of our distractions and everything else for how we're going to make it, how we're going to do the next thing, uh, Jesus so gracefully and so perfectly gives his life for us, right? He, he gives his life on the cross. Uh, he was trustworthy to the point of death. All those things were put in his hands and he had an opportunity to be trustworthy with it or to buckle under the pressure. And, and thanks be to God, Jesus was trustworthy with it perfectly. And so he, we follow in his footsteps as we uh, trust in him and move that direction. And so because of Jesus' trustworthiness, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above all names, right? In Philippians 2. And, and one day that every knee would bow and every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And we get wrapped up in that story and that becomes the pattern for our lives. So we, what we have been given, we don't cling, we don't hold on to, but we give away. And we humble ourselves. And that is how the kingdom of God grows. I want to read the first few verses from Revelation chapter 22. This is the last chapter in our Bibles, in our New Testament. And this is a vision that John sees. And I want you to hear and maybe see a little bit of what our friend Niggle saw and maybe begin to imagine some of our work in this way. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. And on either side of the river is the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, producing its fruit each month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. Nothing accursed will be found there anymore, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him, and they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. And there will be no more night. They need no light or lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. And he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. For the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. the tree of life, and its leaves are for the healing of the nations. I imagine that for all of us who struggle with the purpose of our work, as we continue and we struggle, that there's something similar for us, that we realize at the end of all things, when we have been welcomed into the eternal dwellings by the grace of God, uh, that we will realize, that we will see then what we thought were just little insignificant leaves that we painted that everyone forgot about that somehow they become part of this glorious tree that is for the healing of the nations, an eternal sign and reality to God's goodness and God's grace and the ability of God to save in the face of all adversity. And now when we believe in Jesus and we follow him in every aspect of our lives, when we walk in his footsteps and our work is directed towards his kingdom, we contribute to the beauty and goodness and the truth of eternity. May we imagine and prepare for, with each seemingly small contribution, the eternal dwellings, our home. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.